Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, April 24th. In today's news, lawmakers are already talking about the next stimulus bill as the House passes a $484 billion package. Farmers are throwing away tons of food even as needy American families go hungry. And 43 men lived in a factory for 28 days to make millions of pounds of raw materials to fight the coronavirus. But first, the big idea. President Trump and Vice President Pence showcased emerging laboratory evidence at Thursday evening's White House briefing that suggests the spread of COVID-19 may ebb during the summer months because this novel coronavirus does not last as long in heat and humidity. William Bryan, the acting undersecretary for science and technology at the Department of Homeland Security, detailed recent lab studies carried out by his agency at the U.S. Army's biosecurity lab at Fort Detrick in Maryland. The results, which have not been peer-reviewed, largely match other lab studies and the suspicions of some researchers by showing that the coronavirus, like many other viruses, does not survive nearly as long when exposed to high amounts of ultraviolet light and warm and humid conditions. The study was conducted under idealized conditions and in a controlled setting. Brian says that in the real world, the virus on a playground surface exposed to direct sunlight would die quickly, but the virus could survive a lot longer in shaded areas or on door handles. But it's important to be clear. The weather is no panacea when it comes to this pandemic, considering that warm states like Georgia and Florida are already seeing significant outbreaks as well as warm and humid countries like Singapore. During his presentation, Brian also noted as an aside that bleach kills the virus in about five minutes, while alcohol kills it in about 30 seconds. President Trump, who is not a scientist, then began musing from the podium that perhaps disinfectants like bleach could be injected into lungs to kill the virus. He said researchers should look into it. This is horrified medical experts. Doctors say people would die if they do this. And the maker of Lysol has just issued a statement this morning saying that under no circumstance should their disinfectant products be administered into the human body through injection, ingestion, or any other route. There's obviously so many mysteries about this virus that we're still trying to unlock. For example, podiatrists are reporting numerous cases of sick people, including kids, with small dermatological lesions on their feet. These lesions usually appear before other symptoms or in asymptomatic coronavirus patients. They could be an early warning sign. Doctors are calling this COVID toes, and they're using them to stage earlier interventions. We're also learning more about some of the other symptoms to be on the lookout for. For example, seniors with the virus find themselves needing to sleep more than usual and losing their appetite. They also feel unusually apathetic or confused or dizzy. In the United Kingdom, meanwhile, two young volunteers have become the first people to be infected with a trial vaccine to inoculate against the coronavirus. It was developed by an Oxford University team in under three months, but it will take several more months to know whether it's effective. And a team from Yale is using the U.S. military's biggest outbreak to better understand how the virus spreads. 
At least 777 sailors on the USS Theodore Roosevelt have now tested positive. And the rate of asymptomatic infection, meaning people who have the virus but don't have symptoms, is about 50%, according to the Navy. Now, epidemiologists are looking at the ship infections because they think that they might reveal new clues of how the virus percolates through communities. The Navy has asked a thousand volunteers from the crew to submit to swabs and blood tests to better connect the dots of transmission. Although in the military, there's a term for this. You don't volunteer, you're voluntold. But these serology tests could help pinpoint antibodies created by the immune system after infection, and then closely following their presence will help determine whether immunities have or can be developed. There's also a trove of data inherent to military life that doesn't exist for civilians, a meticulous accounting of where everyone is at nearly every hour of the day, and there are also detailed medical histories for everyone on board the vessel. It's important to remember as we end this latest nightmare of a week, the human toll uh, of this contagion. As of this morning, almost exactly 50,000 of our fellow Americans are now confirmed dead and 869,000 cases have been reported. Here are three of the latest victims who have succumbed. Air Force veteran Don Herring died in Oklahoma at 90. He was the oldest brother of Senator Elizabeth Warren, who recalls his quick, crooked smile that she says seemed to generate its own light. J. Natalie LaSanta, the daughter of a New York City firefighter, died of complications from the coronavirus. She was five months old. And Philip Kahn, a 100-year-old World War II veteran, died in New York a century after the 1918 flu pandemic killed his twin brother in infancy. Khan's children say he had long been fearful of another pandemic happening in his lifetime. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, the House yesterday afternoon advanced the $484 billion relief package to restart the Paycheck Protection Program that passed the Senate earlier this week. President Trump's going to sign it today. Lawmakers from both parties are already talking about pursuing more large spending bills to try to contain the economic fallout of this pandemic. But this measure could be the last one for several weeks as growing divisions emerge between the two parties about how much more to do specifically for state and local governments that are spending a lot of money they don't have. The Treasury Department yesterday issued new guidance making it harder for publicly traded companies to qualify for money that was supposed to go to small businesses, threatening penalties in some cases if firms don't repay money they already received. And the Federal Reserve announced that it would start disclosing the names of companies that receive funding from some of its assistance programs after complaints that the central bank was not being transparent about where taxpayer dollars were going. Treasury said that Paycheck Protection Program loan recipients are expected to self-certify in good faith that they actually need the loans. And then the Small Business Administration announced that it retains the right to audit any borrower later on. And new guidelines issued by the SBA suggest that dozens of publicly traded companies should return money they already got from the first round of what's called the PPP. These companies, which received loans under the earlier round, are being told they need to return them by May 7th. More than 80 
publicly traded companies in an array of industries, including hotels and restaurants and big energy companies got money. One of the largest loans appears to be more than 30 million bucks to the company that runs the Ritz Carlton in Atlanta. Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, a restaurant chain valued at $250 million, has bowed to pressure and agreed to return a $20 million loan it procured under the program earlier this month. Meanwhile, at least 3 million Americans who have lost their jobs are still waiting to receive their first unemployment check. Number two, across the country, an unprecedented disconnect is emerging between where food is produced and the food banks and low-income neighborhoods that desperately need it. American farmers, ranchers, other food producers, and poverty advocates are all pleading with the federal government to help overcome breakdowns in a food distribution system that's leading to producers dumping food while Americans are quite literally starting to starve. The Trump administration is finally stepping in, announcing a $19 billion program to help the struggling agriculture sector and distribute food to families in need. This aid package, the one that was passed by Congress yesterday, includes the government purchase of $3 billion in dairy, produce, and meat products that will go to food banks. About $16 billion, though, is going in direct payments to farmers and ranchers, a key part of the president's political base. But this effort must overcome various logistical challenges that led to the disconnect in the first place. Fresh produce and dairy must be transported from farms to food banks in refrigerated trucks, but refrigerator and freezer storage space must be available on the receiving end to accommodate a surge of frozen meat. Food that originally was slated for restaurants must be repackaged for home use. And all of this must occur while maintaining social distancing and without increasing the demand for labor. Because, unfortunately, food banks, while they're running low on supplies, are running even lower on volunteers. Number three. At his factory just off the Delaware River, in the far southeastern corner of Pennsylvania, Joe Boyce clocked in back on March 23rd for the longest shift of his life. In his office, an air mattress replaced his desk chair. He brought a toothbrush and a shaving kit and moved into the Brascom Petrochemical Plant in Marcus Hook, Pennsylvania, as if it were some kind of makeshift college dorm. For 28 days, Joe and 42 of his coworkers did not leave, sleeping and working all in one place. The casual office kitchen became a mess hall. The factory's emergency operations center became their new lounge room. The team worked 12-hour shifts all day and night for a month straight, producing tens of millions of pounds of the raw materials that will end up in face masks and surgical gowns that are needed on the front lines of the fight. In what they called a live-in at the factory, the undertaking was just one example of the endless ways that Americans from every walk of life are stepping up as our country has gotten on a war footing to fight the contagion. Being separated from family got harder as the days wore on. Joe, for example, has two teenagers. Another gentleman in the factory missed the birth of his first grandchild. But they say no one told them they had to do it. They all volunteered to hunker down at the plant together to ensure no one caught the virus outside as they sought to meet rocketing demand for their key product, polypropylene. Another plant in Neal, West Virginia is doing a live-in right now as well. 
The journey from a blob of chemicals into a face mask in the hands of an EMT in Bergen, New Jersey, or a grocery store clerk in Reno, Nevada, begins at plants like these. I wish, personally, I could buy a beer for all 43 of these guys. Their tenacity offers a timely reminder that for all the problems and the botched response to this crisis, there's nothing wrong with America that cannot be fixed by what's right with America. And that's our people, our doctors and our nurses, our scientists and our factory workers. When Americans mobilize our brains and our brawn, we can vanquish any enemy, whether it's polio or Adolf Hitler. We always have and we always will because we are Americans. This invisible enemy will be no different. And that's the Daily 202 for Friday, April 24th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Homan. Stay safe this weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday.